Red Bulls, Rockstars, and Guinness Book World Records. It's all in a day's work for this week's guest. Daniel Cattulo of City Drive Studios has been directing and producing projects for over 25 years, and there's no stopping him anytime soon. From live performances with the Foo Fighters at the Acropolis to being nominated for over 200 international awards, Dan has seen it all, and he's here to share, well, some of it with us. We also chat about the worst advice he's ever received, why you should never buy into the just trust me statement and his best advice for you. This is episode six of That's the Worst Advice Ever podcast. It's story time. Let's go. All right. Hey, Daniel, how's it going? I'm good. How are you, Ernie? Doing good. Um, Why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and uh, we'll start there. My name's uh, Dan Catullo. I'm the founder and uh, CEO of City Drive Studios and also City Drive Films. Um, Most known for most people, I'm a music video director and live concert director, uh, but I also produce and direct documentaries and uh, finally going into, uh, believe it or not, scripted television as well. But most people know me for my music work that I've done over the years. I've been doing that about 25 years. Uh, Had a few companies and I've done a few hundred music DVDs and a few hundred, uh, you know, uh, music videos that most people know about. Just a, just a few projects. I need to tell. <laughs> um, let's actually, let's go ahead and show this, this video of what sure. you give everybody a visual. Okay. Okay. Figure this out. Hold your breath, make a wish. Count to three. Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Take a look and you'll see into your imagination. watched that in a little while no <laughs> um it it looks like a lot of up. i'm missing live shows yeah see and that that's why i wanted to show it you know i know when i watch it it gets me uh pretty excited as well um how is uh how's that been not being able to do the live stuff because i know that's kind of yeah. your forte. so the first 90 days 
and I, I've been taking the, the quarantine really seriously. Like I don't really leave the house. Um, I'm at my house in Orange County, California now. I have a place out in New Jersey as well, but we've been, we've been out here in Orange County, my family. And, you know, it was kind of nice because, you know, I generally travel like 200 days a year. Um, and I've been doing that, uh, God, for over 20 years. So as long as I've been married. Um, and so being at home with my family 24 uh, seven, that's, I've never been able to do that with my kids. So it was kind of welcome. I needed, I think I needed a minute just to stop and slow down. So, you know, the first 30 days felt like I was on vacation, to be honest with you. And, you know, even the first few months, it was just nice to like, just be a family and not have to deal with the zaniness that is normally in my life, with the traveling, because I usually fly back and forth to New York every week, year round. So, you know, it's, it gets a little hectic being on planes. Uh, now I'm a little more, um, I'm starting to get cabin fever a little bit. Uh, sure. I'm missing, you know, that connection. I, I, I do miss live music. Um, so I'm kind of itching to do a show. Uh, you know, I do realize what we're going through right now, so it's tough. But I mean, I am starting to get a little bit. I get I have ants in my pants now a little more than than normal. Yeah, I can I can imagine. Um, I'm with you. It's being somewhat introverted. It was fine at first, but then I do have my moments where it'd be nice to get a little bit well, more normal. My wife's an introvert, and she you know she likes like her alone time and her space. So she's not used to me being around 24/7. So we kind of had to figure this whole thing out, like. <laughs> you know, different parts of the house. This is like my home office. I've been living in this room. I've probably spent like very 12 hours a day for the past four months in this room. So it's pretty nuts. You know, we're always, we're still trying to figure out how to do this because it's like all of a sudden we're just with each other all the time. Yeah, it's totally, yeah. it's definitely a totally different life. Um, so now with the, with the live event thing being the way it is, is there a pivot? Is there a a different type of project that you turn to or does everything kind of just yeah i mean we kind of don't have a choice uh you know well yes i mean in, in general like we had to do a drastic kind of shift of our company i mean this is obviously sure. for my company for city drive i mean 90 percent of what we do are live events so clearly that is not happening right now and it looks like it could be up to two years before we really go back to the way it was so you know we had a and you know, we have an office in new york and one in la and one in Stockholm and we had a very quickly try to figure out what are we going to do here to stay alive. And fortunately for us, we started pivoting a little bit uh, like eight years ago in the documentary, we started dipping our toe in the water and we're involved in a couple of high profile documentaries. And the past two years, we've kind of really upped our game in documentary and we started producing more and investing more. So fortunately we have a few films that we've been working on that are going to probably get to market by the end of this year, which is nice. Um, yeah. so that'll help out. And then we have other projects that we just got involved in. So we're going to, we're going to probably go to a, a model where it's almost flip-flopping where we're probably going to do 80 to 90% kind of factual type programming over the next six to 12 months and gently, you know, go back into, um, you know, the live space. The good news is also for us is we have a lot of content. We have a lot of projects that were already filmed that didn't come out yet that are going to now hit the market. Um, you know, like we did a special with a spoken word poet uh, named in Q that's finally going to come out. Uh, we have content from some festivals that we produced. There's a bunch of things that now we're able to bring out to the market, hopefully in the fourth quarter, which will help also fill like a void right now because you know, I know how important it is for some people to go to concerts. Um, right. So, and look, we never can re recreate what it's like to be at a concert, but the next best thing is, you know, 
seeing like a live concert on TV. I mean, I, I like to say we're like the porn of the, the music industry, you know, <laughs> never to be as good as real sex, but we're the next best thing. And unfortunately there's no real for the next year. So we have to find a way to get people that fix. And so I think we're going to focus more on some of our catalog and, and doing stuff with that content. And we may be doing a new season of landmarks right now. That's my, I have a TV series called landmarks live where we travel around the world, uh, with artists and do these epic shows at kind of these iconic locations. And we've been in discussions. We were we were supposed to start season two, believe it or not, in June. And we we now held off, actually late May. Right. And now we're kind of revamping it. We may go do a new season without audiences and really focus heavily on the actual landmark. We just don't want to go into production until we can really ensure that our crew is safe. Uh, right, that, which is the whole... And, and, you know, I posted something on Facebook today, you know, there's 195 countries in the world and Americans were not allowed in 166 of them right now. So it'll be very hard to do a season of landmarks when we can't leave the country. So we're, we're trying to figure yeah. it out. So there will be a new season of landmarks at a certain point. We're hoping sooner than later, because we have it all worked out and we have the artists on board and we're just trying to figure out when and where to do it. Yeah, that's exciting stuff. That landmark stuff is pretty cool. Now you've worked with, you've done, previous episodes who are some of the artists and some of the landmarks you've done previously um, my favorite one was well I, it's funny because so overall the, the nothing will beat the food fighters at the acropolis i mean that was just kind of a yeah. an epic experience across the board just going there and even like down to like we rented this beautiful resort out called Laganisi. you know in the band we all had villas on the beach it was just an overall amazing experience you know everybody brought their families um, my favorite episode actually isn't even aired yet. I love the Kings of Leon episode. Uh, we did that in uh, in Memphis. We shot them on Beale Street, and then but we did pickup shots everywhere from Civil Rights Museum to Stax Records to uh, Sun Studios to Graceland. There's just so much culture in that city. Yeah, and I think Chad Smith from the Chili Peppers, who was our host, um, he was mm -hmm. on point on that one. So I think overall, even the look of it and feel of it, the, the Kings of Leon is my favorite episode. But you know, we did. Alicia Keys in New York, and we did everything from a, a performance on the Circle Line with the Statue of Liberty in the background to the Apollo Theater. Uh, we did Andrea Bocelli at the Plaza Vecchio in Florence, which was really special because I'm Italian, and any excuse to go to Italy, <laughs> I usually jump on. And but that was really cool because we shot at the Plaza Vecchio, which is just a stunning room. And then we uh, we did the documentary footage and stuff. We went to his house, and Fortunato Armani was really great, and got to spend time at his house with him. Uh, we did Brad Paisley at West Virginia University. We did the Black IPs in London at Royal Albert Hall. Um, I, you know, it, it, my job doesn't suck. I mean, we did. I mean, Katie Lang. <laughs> no. I mean, we we it, the first season was really uh, a lot of fun, and we had a wide variety of artists. And at the time, we were on PBS here in America. Uh, we never did a deal internationally. Now all that's happening, so I can't talk about it now. But in the yeah. next month, we're going to do a big, big announcement. But the the first season's going to come out on a, on a streaming platform worldwide. And then we have a season two coming, uh, which is great. And season two now, we're even getting ballsier. Uh, some of the locations are even bigger and better. And um, I can tell you one of them, one of them will be the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, so we have a lot of, and when I say the bridge, I mean on the bridge. On so the bridge. we have some pretty cool things coming up that, uh, that a lot of people are going to be like, wow. I mean, so... It's a fun show to do. Uh, unfortunately, though, you can't really do it during a pandemic. Right. Yeah, that, that kind of ruins the vibe, yeah. I would assume. Um, so now all of all of that said, we're gonna I'm gonna cycle back to the documentaries 
that you're talking about and that shift that you guys are making you your most recent documentary you did was breathe nolan breathe yeah uh, the story about nolan birch that, can we talk about that a little bit the story sure. behind it well uh well the coolest thing with this is uh we were nominated for an emmy yesterday uh, congratulations which is a great way to wake up and couldn't be any happier on that uh that film's really personal to me um I, so I went to West Virginia University, um, and I'm very active at the school. Uh, I support the school. I'm active in the alumni, and I'm friends with, with uh, Gordon Gee, the president. And, you know, Gordon is just an amazing guy. And you know, even before WVU, he was the president at Ohio State, Brown, Vanderbilt. He's been a university president for 50 years, and uh, he's just a great guy. And um, I was at West Virginia for an event. Alumni event, and it was a little dedication thing because we we have an endowment there, and we did some things with my family, and so my wife knew Gordon, and this is like a couple months later, and I'm upstairs, I'm at my house in California, and my wife starts screaming, "Hey Dan, get downstairs, you hurry up, and your friend Gordon's on TV," and I'm like, "What?" So I run downstairs, and there's a Dateline episode, and Dateline, it's all about Nolan Birch, uh, who was a kid who passed away at WVU in 2014. And there was this Dayline episode about it. And I knew, I, I, of course, everybody that went to WVU knows about what happened. But I never really, you know, I didn't really know the details. I watched the episode. Something about me just didn't sit right. And I felt like we had to do something. Um, it just felt like, you know, things were starting to spiral out of control there. And I went to WVU and I went there. I mean, I'll be honest. I went there because it was, you know, not, well, I went there to play football. And it was a big football program. But really... The fact that at the time it was the number one party school in America and Playboy magazine definitely was uh, a big reason why I went there. And sure. also I joined the big fraternity there, SIGF. You know, we had over 150 brothers. So, you know, I went there to have a good time. So I was well aware of the, the Greek life and what happened there. But it just felt like things were really starting to go nuts. So I called Gordon and I said, you know, can I come meet with you? I flew to West Virginia and I sat down with the school and I said, what can we do here to make sure this doesn't happen ever again? And we had we threw a bunch of ideas around. I said, you know, give me a couple weeks. Let me figure out what we can do here. And I went back and I pitched on an idea. And the idea was, I would like to tell Nolan's story, but I want the school to get behind it, and I want you guys to come out and stand behind this. You know, most schools, when something like that happens, they will try to bury it. They will go out of their way to make it go away so it ends up on page 10 on Google. And by poking the bear and putting it back out there, you're guaranteeing that if someone Googles West Virginia University, that this death is gonna come up. But I said, if you guys really care about the students, and if you really wanna show people that you wanna to try to end these, these crazy things, let's do something about it. And shockingly, they were like, let's do it. What do we have to do? And I said, look, why don't you guys put half the money up? We'll put half the money up. I wanna to go to Birch's and I wanna get the Birch's on board. Now, the problem was at the time, up until that point, WVU never had any correspondence with the Birches because there was litigation. There was all this legal stuff going on. So, of course, when lawyers get involved, they tell people don't talk to each other. So one of the most special things was, and you know, if you know Gordon, he's just, he cares so much about the students. I mean, he out of all the university presidents in the country, this guy's all about the kids. So and he always wanted to talk to the Birches. He just really was told not to at the time. So the first meeting they ever had, I put together and it was just this touching moment when the Birches came in the room, they hugged and it felt, it seemed like the hug went on for like an hour, but there was just real genuineness. So and they were like crying. So it was nice to have them come back together. And shockingly, the Birches went with my idea, which is a really, it was probably the hardest thing I ever had to do to ask parents uh, the most terribly personal question ever. 
I had this idea to open the film up and use the security footage of Nolan actually dying. Um, the thing about this death that was different of other fraternity deaths is there were security cameras in the house and they have basically almost the whole incident on film. And I yeah. felt that if we could show kids that footage, it would wake kids up. It would, it, you know, kids, they, they kicked him, they took pictures with him. He sat there, he soiled his pants, no one did anything. And this went on forever. And the thing about Nolan's death that just really sticks with me and it's really hard to even grasp is this, it, you can watch it. This was so avoidable. It was so senseless. If someone just called 911, he would be with us today. So I think, and I thought by showing that footage and showing people, um, you know, these situations and, you know, and learn how to recognize when someone's in, in need in dire straits, that it would get people to, you know, wake up and try to do smart things. So they worked, they worked with us on this. And so for the next year, we worked not only with the Birch family and WVU, but the WVU just gave me all the resources. They have a huge, um, they have a hospital there and, we were able to talk to people in the medical school. We dealt with psychologists, lawyers. We dealt with Hazen organizations. Um, I, I became engulfed in this world and you know, the stats were just staggering on what's happened. So what we did with this is we, we created a, um, a bystander awareness campaign um, that I brought my friend Michael Fiore in, in this, this agency called Anyone. And we did a campaign called Would You? And the purpose of it is to drive kids to want to do the right thing and dial 911. And then we also did the film. And the film is a 35 minute, it's really geared to be an educational piece to really tell Nolan's story, but also to get kids to recognize to do the right thing. Um, so it had a very specific purpose. And now that program is being rolled out nationwide to other universities. We've open sourced it. We uh, premiered the film in November at West Virginia, not knowing it was gonna happen. We didn't feel it was right to sell it to anybody. We wanted to put it out there and we put it out on Facebook and YouTube. and. To our shock, we had over 3 million views in the first two weeks and we're flooded with requests for screenings and Q&As and panels. And so now it's not only rolling out nationwide, but we're also um, gonna do a tour. We had a 36 city tour booked for April and May, which clearly got pushed and now we're gonna do it next year. But we're gonna do 75 cities now with the Birches and a bus and we're gonna go and we're gonna do these Annie Hazen uh, seminars with panels. Um, and, uh, you know, but I was funny during that, during that process, you know, the Birches were part of a group called Push, um, with, which is a, a group that no one ever wants to become members of. It's basically parents of kids who died from hazing incidents. And they all support each other. And when we did the premiere in West Virginia, a bunch of other families came out to support the Birches. And as I started to get to know these other mothers, like Cindy Hips, whose son Tucker Hips died at Clemson, and you start to get to know these other families and you start realizing all of a sudden I woke up one day and this is a few months ago. I'm like, it's all the same story. It doesn't matter where these kids die, how they die, what decade it is, what their social, what their background is, whether they come from a rich family or poor family, it, it's all the same thing. It's a senseless death. Everybody um, keeps their mouth shut. It's this whole protect the house and code of silence thing. No one really ever gets criminally prosecuted. I mean, there was a, a, a high-profile case two weeks ago, and the kid got 31 days in jail, even with five felonies. Uh, the financial settlements are nowhere near what you see for other wrongful death cases, like a vehicular manslaughter. I'm like, what is behind this? So now I'm working on a whole other hazing project, and I'm working with all the families. I have five families I'm working with who actually lost their sons, and we're telling all five boys' stories, and we're seeing showing how it ties together. And there's just, just this never-ending 
revolving door. These stories just are the same and it doesn't matter. If, if the funny thing is, well, that's not funny. The crazy thing is it's getting worse. Even with all these kids dying and, you know, most of the time when a lawsuit settled with the university, they, uh, they, what's it called? They, they usually settle and nine times out of 10, a foundation will come out of it. A uh, university are part of the financial settlements, they start a foundation. So there's all these foundations. There's all these laws that have been passed, like different Annie Hazen bills. And even with all this and all the millions of dollars in, in Annie Hazen programs, there's hazenprevention.org, there's stophazen.org, there's all these different groups. Hazen numbers have gone up. It's gotten worse. So now I'm like part of this group and I'm just, I don't think I'm, I, I mean, I think I'm gonna do this for the rest of my life. I'll probably make Hazen film after Hazen film until this shit stops. But it's basically engulfed my life. And so now we're doing this whole other project and I even have two other projects now that I want to do after because Hazen and bands is, is, is a horrible thing. Hazen with the military, Hazen um, sports. I mean, this is, it, 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 there's so many layers to this and it's so senseless and these kids have to stop. So I see us going down that world. And so that's why like, you know, the Emmy thing yesterday was so personal to me um, because I know what that Emmy will do, especially if we win, and I know what that will do for the film. I know it'll open up doors even bigger. We've already gotten a lot of big press, like I was on the Cameron Hall show. A lot of you know outlets reported on Breathe Mill and Breathe. We know it's already been seen by a few million people, but the Emmy thing could really push this into a whole nother level now, where not only we can get in bigger doors to do screenings, but we could raise more money for their foundation and put other things in place that can help, you know try to stop this because it's just about education. I mean, these kids, yeah. just are, we don't ever think, well, one case is a little hairy, the Robert story at high point, that's a little, it looks more like a murder than a hazing incident. But in general, all of these cases, whether it's Gary uh, DiVersilli or at a Ryder University or Tucker Hips at Clemson or Nolan Birch or even Tim Piazza, all these kids, you look at all these stories, we don't think anybody at any of these houses ever said, ever knew that these kids were gonna die. Um, we don't think anybody purposely did them any harm or knew for sure someone's going to die. That, but that's how crazy it is because if they can just be educated a little more and, and learn to recognize when someone's in dire need, then maybe these things will stop. Yeah, and that's a great point, the education. I think a lot of what we see is because of lack of understanding of cer certain circumstances and why we see it get so out of hand. Um, but that'll be great if that story gets out and gets wider, as you said, because of the coverage and because of that Emmy nomination and hopefully more people get educated on it. Um, now, speaking of the Emmy nomination, that's one of many nominations that you've received internationally. You've gotten something over 200 oh, nominations, right? In your um, career? I won't, yeah, I won't make you I know well over a hundred. I mean, you know, just on the telly awards, I think I've won 32 of those, but uh, yeah, uh, you know, it's crazy. And, uh, I, I, I go, it all goes back. Like, you know, um, yeah, it, it's funny though. The only one I haven't, I haven't gotten, I've had a few nominations, but I don't have a Grammy and I always wanted a Grammy. Uh, <laughs> that, you know, it's like the awards are, you know, I, I even stopped going to award shows. I mean, you know, um, it's bum bumming me out because this is the first year I probably would have went to the Emmys. And, uh -huh. and this year there's, it's a virtual show. The, the, this was uh, the 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 Breed Nolan Breed was with the regional Emmy. It's with the Ohio Valley region. So the ceremony is supposed to be October fourth, and because of COVID, they're doing it virtually. And I, I was joking with the Birches yesterday. I go for the I mean, the first time I actually would have been excited about going to an award show 
and I really would have went. And now, you know, we have to, it's virtual. So, you know, it would have been nice for them to live in that moment too. So it is yeah, what it is. Definitely. Yeah. Good old Murphy's law. But yeah. I mean, we, you know, after a while you get, it's funny. Like I used to chase awards. I used to like really want awards bad. And, um, as you get older and you get more secure, like in your, your line of work and stuff, you realize like, you know, it, it just, I don't do it for the awards anymore. Like, I mean, we used to specifically pick, pick certain jobs or gigs that we knew might have a good chance at an award. Um, as I get older, I don't really care about them. Plus my wife is starting to get fed up. She wants me to, like I took over the living room and I have like, I, I finally brought all my awards. I took them all from my offices and I brought them home. And it's pissing her off because the entire living room is just awards and, and she doesn't want me. I just won 16 Tully Awards um, at once, uh, like a month ago. And uh, seven of them were for Breathe, Nolan, Breathe. And um, she's like, you better not order those statues. Are you crazy? Like, where are you going to put them? Because I'm starting to like stack things on top of each other. And so, you know, she doesn't, um, she doesn't want me bringing them in the house. So, I, you know, I, I, at this point, like, you know, less is more. We'll just go after like the key, you know, the, the important ones, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Now, on the on the topic of awards, you are actually a world record holder, correct? Yeah, that's actually a world record. <laughs> I'm not one for segues, by the way. <laughs> just roll right actually, into. Stuff. I have it here. That one's at my house here too. Yeah, I won a no. world record for Creed uh, when I did Creed's DVD on the reunion tour in 2009. We were thinking of fun things to do, like as a marketing angle, but even as a kid, I was always obsessed with Guinness Book of World Records and I always wanted yeah. to be in there. And I would always like try to find just stupid things that like, well, maybe I can beat this record. And um, I noticed, I forget what it was. There was a, there was a record for something I'm going to do with like still photography and cameras and like a stop motion thing. So I called, uh -huh. I called Guinness up and I said, look, I have this idea. Um, what were the most cameras ever used like in a live TV special? And at the time it was like 38 cameras of Justin Timberlake at Madison Square Garden. And um, I said, well, I want to break that record. So, you know, you have to go through this whole process and you have to pay for an adjudicator. And so we go through it and it was funny. So we're coming into it and I was going to do about 55 cameras. And as I'm getting close, you know, because you, you know, you pay for the, you start talking to the adjudicator and it's this guy named Gaz Deeds. And I, and I talked to Gaz, I said, God, so when does the book come out? Because I want to buy a bunch of copies. Like, well, your record has to stand for at least two years before you get in the book. So if you win a record, you're on the website right away, but they don't put you in the book unless you're, you go at least two years. I'm like, oh, shit. Someone can easily break, especially now, because there were very specific requirements. You had to have every camera had to be isolated, so they had to be recording in the camera. But in the TV truck, I had to be able to go to each camera at least once live on TV. So I just can't put a bunch of cameras out there and say, okay, go. And at the time, this is 2009, GoPros didn't have the capability of being routed into the truck so I could put them in the feed. They only recorded on the camera. So I couldn't use GoPros. So we were like, but I knew that technology was coming. So we're like, oh, we have to make sure that no one ever breaks this record. I want to get in the damn book. So we started reaching out to like every, every like TV company. We're trying to find every, and we shot this in Texas and, and it just got out of control. So I'm like, it would be great to have 100 cameras. And 100 turned into 150, then 200. And then I brought, remember the Matrix guys in, that company Big Freeze, they did the Matrix technology? I called them up. I'm like, you know, they had Canon 5Ds. I said, can we use that technology, but can we route each camera separately into my truck so I can go to each one? And they have, like, these, these racks of, like, 60 cameras a piece. And 
so they said, yeah. So we ended up like bringing, we actually brought two TV trucks and one of them was the big F and F truck that did the Super Bowl halftime that year. We slaved them together and we ended up getting it up to 239 cameras, which the record, no one's even touched it. And it was <laughs> iconic because it was funny because I had to direct the show with a guy behind my shoulder with a clicker. And every time uh -huh. I would, so I kept 16 cameras, my main 16 in front of me on my monitor. And then I had another monitor wall with 16 that were the rotating cameras. And every time I'd go to those cameras, they'd reset the wall and they'd put more camera feeds in. By the last song of the show, I still had like 75 cameras available that I never went to. And I thought I was like going to them. So I'm like, shit. So we started counting down. I started to saying, go to camera 200, go to 201, go to 202. We're just like clicking one after the other. So people watching the show live, because it was streamed live on this thing called Rock Pit, which eventually became Quello, and then um, Armed Forces Network. But they, they probably thought like something was wrong with like the connection because it looked like the cameras were just jumping because a lot of them were right next to each other. But okay. we were I, I was trying to get the camera count in to get to get the record number up the last minute. And so yeah, that was that was a blast. That was really funny. I had a you know, Pete Bowers, who's still one of my partners, was a partner back then. But we had this other guy, Brian Lisi, who was a complete lunatic. And he was totally down for doing any crazy idea we had. So that one was a lot of fun. The band got a kick out of it too. I, I mean, I had cameras everywhere. I had this truss above them that we lowered down. We actually did the the Matrix stuff with them. Um, never put it in. I think I put it in as a bonus feature, some stuff. But I, we had that uh, that big freeze technology. So I did a thing where I went around them. Yeah, it's really weird to do with music though. It, it, it looked like they were all just kind of frozen in time, <laughs> so they weren't necessarily playing along with it. But it was really cool looking. Yeah. Uh, it was yeah. It was it was that was a that was a really fun shoot. <laughs> That, so that, that sounds fun. It also sounds majorly insane. It was, you know, our crew on that one, I think, I think we were a little over 300 people. And I've never used two huge TV trucks, but I know cabling wise, I think our yeah. cabling alone was like 300,000 just for fiber, just yeah. to run all the cabling. It was like, we have a really cool, fun documentary at it. And back then, I had a massive like Red Bull addiction. I smoked, but like, I was like, so, you know, if you Google, I think if you Google on YouTube, uh, Creed Red Bull Freak, it'll come up. Someone, that's why someone labeled it. And there's behind the scenes of me just basically drinking Red Bull after Red Bull after Red Bull. I think the day of the show, I had over 30 Red Bulls in one day. And we were trying to get the Guinness Book of Record guy to, like, start, you know, I want to get another record for drinking energy drinks. They stopped yeah, doing I was gonna it. Say they used to be dangerous like that, where they think <laughs> they may try to copy. They don't do. They had So they wouldn't do a caffeine world record. <laughs> yeah, well. At least you know. From back then, so we were crazy back then. I mean, that was like, well, I am so calm and like I feel like such an old man now compared to the way I was back then. <laughs> um, I I am a big fan of the the Guinness part because the same reason as a kid. You know, I I was reading at a very early age, but I didn't really pick up the habit of reading. But I sure would go page to page on a Guinness book all day long. So you know, I had to. They change it. So I think I was in, I, they didn't put me in the 2009 book or 10. It was the 11 book. And then it wasn't in the 12 because they, they don't put all the, like, there isn't one Guinness Book or record book that has all the records. They only feature like a certain amount of records. Like, I guess if they did a book with all the records, it would be huge. It's super I, genius marketing, I guess. I guess so. You know, I wish they, I remember, I think when we were kids, they had a book that was like pretty thick that they had all the records in it. Right now it's like more of like a coffee table book and has pictures in it. And unfortunately, even with us, they had, I think our passage in it, like a little section, we didn't put pictures. They just had 
a little like paragraph. I was kind of bummed because we had some pretty epic pictures from that day that we gave them. But uh, yeah. you know, political, who knows? They should write him a firmly worded letter about that. Ah. Yeah. One thing, now it's easier to break that record. I mean, I could break that record in a minute for a fraction of the price because like the new GoPros now are really, I mean, amazing. And like, I came up with a couple ideas. I, I actually was going to reach out to GoPro like a year ago to say, hey, you want to help me break my own record and have them send me 400 GoPros. And I would, you know, because now they're very easy to, to route into TV trucks. And so, you know, they, they didn't have that technology before. And I'm sure, you know, just for the gimmick of it, they may they may want to do something fun. But yeah, I, I always come up with ideas. I think, you know, maybe the Golden Gate Bridge show, maybe when we do something really epic, we do, you know, we break another record with it. But I mean, yeah, my, my goal eventually was, I always wanted to collect Guinness you know, World Records. Like I wanted to have a bunch of them, but <laughs> not just for like, not just like for directing, just even doing silly shit. Cause I always go through to find things like, oh, we can break that record, you know? We, we can <laughs> make the world's largest pizza. I mean, you know, it's just, and I, was always, just like, yeah, I was always obsessed as a kid. I'm like, God, I just want to be in that damn book, but it'd be cool to have a whole bunch of them. Yeah, that, that would be pretty fun. It, it would be crazy, but that would be fun. I, I was sort of part of when last year at Kaboo, because uh, we produced it, they did a, the most people of the world's largest silent disco. So, you know, they had, it was very weird to watch because we had like, I think 20,000 people wearing headphones. So they're all dancing and there's lights going on. There's a DJ on stage, but you don't hear a thing. It's just, it, we, we were just there filming, so we filmed it, but we theoretically were part of it, but I wasn't the organizer of it. So I didn't get another world record, but I was part of it. But watching that happen, it was just, you know, and, and that was, you know, it was an easy thing to do. It just cost money because you have to get 20,000 headsets to people. You know, sure. but, you know, just watching that go down. I just, I love, I, I, you know, and now you're, now you're getting my, I'm trying to figure out what can I do during COVID? I, I have to get another world record. So. <laughs> well, apologize to your wife for me if you do end up doing that because I'll feel <laughs> responsible. So now the, now the silent disco thing, that's something fairly new to me. I saw something about this the other day, these like silent DJ parties. Yeah, the, you know, it's actually brilliant. And, you know, when, if you watch it happen, it's really bizarre. It's bizarre. Because you see people and they're all dancing and you don't hear anything. But then when you put the headphones on, like they, they, some of the headphones, like the basses, it's actually a really cool thing. And so, you know, if you're throwing a party and like you're in the Hollywood Hills, it's actually a brilliant thing because you're not going to make any noise. So I kind of get it uh, now that now that because I thought it was the dumbest idea ever until we went and we did it. And I, someone gave me headphones and I was like, wow, this actually isn't that bad. Um, it, but it's super awkward to watch if you're not participating. And so if you ever go to one, like take your headphones off for a minute and just look around, you'll be like, this is super weird. It's super weird. <laughs> um, now of, of everything you've done, do you have any one thing that stands out the most? Oh yeah. I mean, I, I always answer this question. My Rage Against the Machine show in 2010 in London. I mean, you know, um, that show even more so than anything else I've ever done. I mean, just the way that came together. And I mean, obviously I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of theirs too, but you know, there's so many great memories from that. And it's, you know, one thing about those guys that's great is that, you know, it's not about the production. They just go out there and they just completely slay it. And we didn't have a big light show. There was no video walls, but you know, we did this show in Finsbury park. It was actually, I did something with them a few months earlier where we did this live broadcast to the BBC to try to topple the X factor, you know, number one song for Christmas campaign and killing the name of became number one 20 years after its release. And so they promised people in London a free concert if, uh, if they hit number one and they did it 
And so next, you know, six months later, I'm in Europe with Rage. We um, we did a little mini tour, so I traveled with them to Germany. And we filmed all stuff, but you know, the main show was in London, and uh, you know, seventy thousand people. Um, it was they were just going crazy the whole time. In fact, my TV truck was backstage, and obviously it was on the grass. The TV truck was shaking. It was wow. going back and forth from the, the the earth was vibrating from everybody, and it was just. I've never been able to capture so much energy in my life. It was just, that's like, if you watch that show, you you kind of feel like you're there because the crowd was just so insane. And I had Jeff Cronenworth, who was, the, he was a, you know, cinematographer. He's a, he's a two-time Oscar nominee, but he did everything from Fight Club to Seven to Girl with the Dragon Tattoo to Social Network. Um, you know, I told Jeff I wanted to basically recreate the Fight Club of concert DVDs where we went for like really raw energy. The cameras were more like we, we we didn't go for a polished look we made it dirty on purpose and we shot through the audience through heads it was a different vibe than i've ever done and that, that show just stands out and then there was other there's just crazy moment after crazy moment i mean jimmy page was with me in the tv truck watching me direct which was super creepy um you know usually my truck's like a a party where we're all turning around we're high-fiving each other because i sit in the front and i have my vision mixer uh, i was that's what they call it in Europe. It's a technical director here on one side and my AD on another, and sometimes a script supervisor and the producers in the back. Jimmy Page was standing behind me with his arms crossed, staring at me, you know, watching me direct. So, but I didn't know it at first. So I'm like, I turn around to high five Pete, one of my partners, and I see Jimmy Page sitting there. I slowly turn back around and I didn't turn around again for like 25, 30 minutes because I was so intimidated. I'm like, holy shit, Jimmy Page is hovering over me, watching me direct. And I was like, no you guys are me right now. Totally taking the fun out of it because I just didn't know how to act. I, was, I, was, you know, I don't get starstruck often, but when people like that come in, that's like DEFCON 5 level. So, you know, he stayed there for like almost a half hour. And uh, so there was just nothing but great memories on that. Um, yeah, epic, you know, and it sucks because we were hoping to maybe do something again this summer. You know, they have this 10-year cycle. They were back together and I was sending emails to Tom. We were trying to figure out what to do. And now, obviously, you know, the whole tour got canceled. And so they're saying they're going to tour next year, but we'll see. And so, you know. That, that I think, would be some crazy numbers. I would love yeah, to see Rage get back. Yeah, I would, I would say the top three are my Rage show, Rush and Rio, which was obviously a, a, a groundbreaking mode. That was a big turning point in my career. And then um, probably the Foo Fighters at the Acropolis were like kind of, and then Dave Matthews in Central Park. It was kind of like the four shows that were kind of, you know, they they were like real backbone of my career. Like all of them in one way had something to do with kind of like big moves in my in my career. Sure. Now, now you dabbled a bit in 3D too, right? Well, we, we didn't dabble. We, we lost our asses. I mean, and so did everybody else. I mean, every, it looked like at one point that 3D was going to be it. And we, my old company, we were shifting a lot. And like by 2007, we started heavily invested in 3D. Everybody thought 3D. And here's the thing about 3D, like proper 3D, like we were working with a company called 3Ality. In 3Ality, we did like uh, U2 in 3D, uh, Black Eyed Peas in 3D, but 3Ality was the real deal. Same with like, you know, James Cameron's company. There were companies where it was the real deal. The thing, the thing about 3D is like proper 3D is not cheap, right? It's expensive. Sure. So what happened is there was a bunch of companies that came out there that started doing these 2D to 3D conversions, and a lot of them were shit. And so when proper 3D was done, and where 3D really was jaw-dropping, if you see like animated films, anim right. animated films of real 3D technology is, is great. 
But when you have bad 3D technology, it's not it's not even it's not even shitty. It's a horrible experience. So what happened is he started having when 3D really started blowing up, everybody started running the game. He started having crappy 3D, and then I would say at least 51% was crappy, and it just destroyed the whole market. And we had a lot of things like even my Alter Bridge at Wembley, we shot it in 3D. And we used three reality cameras, and we shot it regularly in 2D. But that was right when the whole 3D market kind of started collapsing, and there just wasn't a home for it. Um, you know, it costs a lot of money to like like actually make a 3D Blu-ray and get it out there, and there wasn't really a market. So we have this. And we, I did a bunch of shows that never in 3D that we never released in 3D. We only released them in 2D because I couldn't even get a distributor to take the shows for no advance. Like there was just no market, and so it was really weird on how that went. I mean, I watched like I watched it go from VHS to DVD, and that was explosive. And that's right when that's when my career really blew up. And then it went from DVD to HD DVD and Blu-ray. And it was a little weird there for a minute because there was like a format war between Blu-ray and HD DVD, but ultimately Blu-ray won the format. But it was really weird on like 3D, just like 3D came at a time when the retail business was going away. The, you know, all the all the best buys, you start seeing all these stores and physical product was going away and it was going, It was there was a weird five year period where people weren't buying physical product anymore, but they weren't quite streaming it yet or downloading it. So there was, I would say from like 2009 to like 2013 or 14, there was just no home for any kind of live concert product or where you couldn't make any money on it at least. So it was a super trippy period of time. Um, and 3D just kind of disappeared. It's interesting, you don't even see 3D movies anymore. Yeah, actually, they're all, yeah, it's yeah. because if you ever, you know, there were some really good 3D films done. I'm like, you know, I think that I think that the bad 3D companies just ruined it for everybody. Uh, because I don't know if you've ever seen a really good 3D film, but if, I mean, it's a different way of looking at things. So yeah, I, it definitely is. Um, I haven't. I think the honestly, I think the only thing I saw in 3D was one of the Toy Story movies or something they did in 3D or something like that, and. I mean, I thought it was good for what we do. So, like, if you ever sat down, unfortunately, it never came out like outside of it. But like, if, if I ever took you to the 3D uh, offices of Burbank and I, I let you watch YouTube in 3D, a film that was properly done, you honestly felt like you were at the concert. One of the hardest things I have to do is try to recreate what it's like to be at a concert, and that's right. really hard to do because it's about that the relationship with your friend, and that, that's why they're having a hard time now with these drive-in shows because if you can't be with people, like if you're separated. You might as well just be at home. Like you're losing that connection. Right. But you know, Bono was great because Bono played along with it. So Bono like understood the technology, wanted to learn everything about it. So he would do things into the camera, like put his hand out, and like it was. I mean, jaw dropping the technology, and you really felt like you were at a U2 show in, in, in Brazil. I mean, it was. It. I mean, it was. It was a whole other experience, and the downside is if people just didn't jump in, you know, and do this crappy 3D, like that could have become the norm. And and I, I was super excited at the time, you know, having, you know, I, I felt like the 3D market could have been a great way to bring big artists into people's homes, but you know, it just it fizzled out. It was really weird. I mean, I think I have six or seven 3D projects sitting in a vault that never came out. <laughs> just, I can't even I can't even get them out if I want. I get fans every once in a while that like ask me about. But I get all of the Alter Bridge fans are really uh, active, and they ask me a lot about Wembley and 3D. And I'm like, 
I go start a GoFundMe or whatever. If you guys, you know, just for me to do a print to get like a certain amount of copies to people would cost almost a hundred grand to do the post to get it out. I go, if you guys, we don't care about money, but if you guys show us there's a demand, we'll find a way to get it to you. Like I would love for it to come out, let people see it in 3D, but it's just, we, we, you know, I already lost enough money on shooting the damn thing. I just can't give it away. You know? So yeah. it's crazy that I, how that went away. It's funny. No one, no one's talked about that with me in years. But that was a real big disappointment. I honestly, I everybody thought the 3D business was going to blow up. It kind of went away. What in 2016 or 15 or 16 is we just kind of yeah, yeah, and it's, it's, it like gone, vanished. There yeah, was no any animated films aren't doing it anymore. It was a way for movie theaters to charge an extra five bucks too. You know, you would have thought that the movie theaters would have loved it. Yeah, well, interesting. They don't, you know? they don't need any more reason to charge more for a ticket. But. <laughs> Now they do. By the way, I would gladly pay 50 bucks to go to a movie right now. I miss the movie theater so bad. And I, just, you know, I will be the first one in line when they're back to, uh, to try to, um, to, to try to support and get movies. Cause I miss movie theaters. Not, there's nothing better than that, that theater experience. I mean, we're big movie. Yeah. Buses, and we take our kids and it really sucks right now that we can't go to a movie. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so now we've, we've got all that cool, fun stuff out of the way. I wanted to ask, how did you get into what you're doing? How did it start? Uh, well, um, I kind of fell in the entertainment industry. I, I never wanted to be in the entertainment industry. I mean, with only, I was, a, I played drums since I was four. So of course, growing up as a kid, I always wanted to be a rock star, but that's a little unrealistic. So, um, you know, and I, I went to college to play football and, my, my goal, believe it or not, all through childhood, like if I showed you my middle school yearbook and my, and my senior yearbook, I always wanted to be a doctor. But I knew that I couldn't go to school and play football and be pre-med. So I, it was always one of those things, okay, go to college, have fun, get a business degree, and then go to medical school. And, you know, my teen years, I started working at the Meadowlands and Madison Square Garden as a stagehand. And I started working with these big concerts that came in. And then while I was in college in West Virginia, I would even drive all the way back to New York for a big show. Like if you two had five shows at Madison Square Garden, I'd drive back, work it, and then go back to West Virginia. And then believe it or not, I bought a bar and grill while I was in college and I was a promoter. So I started getting the music industry bug. And then, you know, in my early twenties, you know, I was fortunate enough. I got to go on the road with a lot of bands and you know, I toured with a lot of big bands and and uh, it worked with everybody from Guns N' Roses to Metallica Live. I mean, I was out with some, a lot of it extreme. I was out with some cool shows and tours. And that's where I kind of got the travel bug and the music industry bug. And, you know, you just blink an eye before you know it, like eight years goes by and you've traveled the world. And while I was um, traveling and I was on the road, I met a woman named Glennis Gross and her husband, Michael. And Glennis, uh, her husband was partners with Ivan Reitman at the time. Mm -hmm. did Ghostbusters and Twins and Beethoven and all those films. And Glennis and I became close. And every time I'd come through California, I'd hit her up and we'd get together. And it was, I think it was 96 or 97. I, I, I reached out to her saying, hey, I'm going to move to California. And my goal at the time was I want to buy a bar. And I was looking at buying maybe the Roxbury or uh, I was looking at nightclubs. And sure. I said, you want to invest? And Glennis was like, we love to invest. And so I started, I partnered with her and we started looking at nightclubs and every time we look at one we were trying to find one with a stage because i knew all these bands and i can get bands to come play shows even if like even if they had a show at the hollywood bowl they may maybe would come by at like two in the morning for a, a surprise show 
And it, it, we kept ended up always looking at theaters. So at the time, we looked at a place called The Palace, which is now Avalon. Then we even looked at buying the Pantages, believe it or not. Uh, we were going to buy the Pantages from the city. And then Disney ended up buying it. And, uh, but at the time, it looked like it was going to be eminent domain and it was going to be torn down because they were, they were building a subway underneath it. And it looked like it was going to have structural problems. But we, we took some advice from friends. Like, if you guys are going to buy a theater, don't go into an L.A. market. Don't stay away from a major market. Um, you know, go up. It was actually a guy named Rick Van Santen. It was one of the Paul Tillet, one of the partners at, at Golden Boys, who was actually one of the founders of Coachella. Rick passed away a few years ago, but he's the one that gave me advice. So we ended up starting in a secondary market. We ended up buying the Ventura Theater, and I had this beautiful concert venue. We promoted, we had a bunch of great shows, and then lost our butts on it because the renovation cost too much money. We really knew nothing we were doing, but by that point now, I'm sucked into the industry. <laughs> right. We got out of the theater in 2000, or, yeah, 99, ended in 99. We only had it for a couple of years. And then um, I joked with Lennis and Michael. I said, oh, I, 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 I corrupted you guys in music. Now take me in the film. And funny enough, we started a film company. And the original concept was we were going to do low-budget movies, low-budget features. I would, I would, we'd do $1 million features that would sell like to HBO or something. And as we started developing it, um, I, uh, I reached out a friend of mine. It was Paul Geary. He was the drummer of Extreme. And uh, he was a manager now, and he was managing a band called Godsmack. And they were playing the Palace, which is now Avalon. And uh, I went to see Paul, and I went to the Godsmack show, and this, it was like insane. And like the, the band was just starting to blow up. The, the song Whatever just came out. And, you know, they, they had a big homecoming show coming up at, in Worcester, Massachusetts, at the Worcester Central, like their first arena show. And Paul's like, you guys should come film our show. So I went back and I told Glennis, I said, look, we should uh, do music DVDs. I think this music DVD thing's going to blow up. Remember, this is early 2000. Like, there were still VHSs going on. Like, no one, music DVDs sold like 2,000 copies. And I'm like, but I think this DVD thing's going to blow up. So we ended up becoming a music DVD company. And we went and we partnered with Godsmack. And then I went to their label and I, and I said, I need to get a sign off. And Avery Littman, the president at the time of Republic, we still a president of Republic, but Republic back then was a rock label. They had like three doors down, uh, Godsmack. Now they have like Ariana Grande. They have the world. Republic's like the biggest label. But I told Avery, I'm like, look, can we own the copyrights? Like, look, if you're going to put a million bucks up, you guys can own everything. We don't care. And so I started this relationship where we did Godsmack. And next thing you know, we did like 200 artists over the next like eight years. But we had partnerships with labels where we would own the copyright. We would put the money up. We'd do it. And next thing you know, by two years later, my Russian Rio came out. We sell almost 3 million copies. So it went from like in 99, 2000, where like DVDs were selling like 3,000 copies. It jumped to like 3 million. It went that quick where the industry just blew up. And by that point, it's pretty obvious I'm there. I'm not going to medical school, and so right. I ended up running a company, which I really had. I still have no idea what the hell I'm doing. I mean, I, I've been trying to get out of the CEO role for years now, and we've been act, on an active search to find someone to run the company. But um, you know, the best advice I ever got, I still haven't really taken. I'm still trying to figure it out. You know, Steven Spielberg. I worked with Steven on a on a show in 2005, and I sat down with him at lunch, and he told me. Uh, I asked him what, you know, if you can give me any advice. He's like, you know, you have to pick a side. You either want to be a deal maker or a filmmaker. You can't do both. And I was like, well, you do both with that. And he's like, I don't do both. I have people that run my company, really. You know, but you have to decide do you want to be a director or CEO. And for years, I'm like, I can do it both. And you really can't. And I'm learning the hard way on that. And so I'm trying now just to stay over on the creative side. But 
you know, I ended up getting we, a tsunami. Like the 2000s were like one big blur. Like we're, it, we were just so busy and we did show after show and I, a lot of ups and downs and would lose a million and make a million. It was like, it was insane, that whole business. And then it's kind of weird towards the end of 2000s, it seemed like it came to a grind and halt because when the format war was finally won, it was Blu-ray, um, all of a sudden the retailers went away. Circuit City closed, The Wiz, almost all Tower Records. So there was no place to sell this, this stuff anymore. And it was starting to segue into digital, but it really took a decade before bandwidth was there until people started really watching live concerts or streaming it or downloading it online. So it got a little weird there. And so that's why we, I kind of segued more into documentaries at the time. It's kind of funny. I think when the, when the retail business went away, I started doing docs and now it's kind of funny. I'm, I'm leaning on docs now because live concerts are gone. So docs yeah. is a thing that we always go back to that saves our butts, I guess. Um, now what, what is with your whole history that you had, if you could narrow it down to one thing, what's the worst advice you ever received? Shit. Career-wise, if, if you can answer that. Um, you know, it's always the same thing. Um, it's always that same thing, trust me. I always end up trusting people. And, uh, and you know, I know better now. Like, for whatever reason, my gut's never been wrong, and I, I tend to go against my gut once in a while, and I try to justify things in my head, and you trust other people, and you end up getting... You know, screwed around. Like a good example is um, there, there's a very famous manager. I mean, he's probably one of the biggest ever to walk the planet Earth was a guy named Bernie Brillstein, most known for managing the cast of Friends. And that Steven Spielberg show I just told you about, he managed the, the guy Dan Finnerty, who was the star of it. He did this thing called Dan Band. It was a Bravo special. And because Steven Spielberg was involved, we had Mick G involved. There were all these big players. There was a lot of lawyers. And so unfortunately, we didn't get all the contracts done prior to the shoot and it was a live show on on bravo and i know better too and like going into it everyone's oh just trust me we're all working together this is the way it's done and we wrote along and you know our, i think we put a million and a half dollars up and uh you know but i was intimidated you know i'm like working i mean i'm in rooms i'm sitting there and steven spielberg's right next to me i'm like holy shit and so it was really weird but i trusted everybody i listened to listen to bernie the show went out amazing and then we were supposed to do the international launch and the home and the home the dvd the home video stuff and the day after the shoot, Bernie calls me and wants to change the deal and wanted twice the money now for Dan because it went so great. And I was like, we have a deal. We're in legal. We're, we're almost done. He's like, yeah, I want a different deal now. And I'm like, what do you mean you want a different deal? He's like, well, what are you going to do now? You're already pregnant. So he knew we had over a million and a half dollars to, to lose. And, you know, we trusted him and the guy screwed me. So the funniest thing is I ended up like, I ended up going batshit. I mean, this was the craziest story I've ever been there. So I actually went to his office, stormed in. We start screaming at each other. I, mean, I laugh at it now because I look at it. He was such an icon. I was such a young, this is 2005. I was like a, was much younger in my career. And I'm sitting here arguing with probably, arguably probably one of the most powerful guys in Hollywood. And he's like, oh, I just calm down. I'm, I'm cursed. I'm going total Jersey on him. He's like, just calm down, sit down. And I sit down and he takes a book and he throws a book at me. And I go, what the hell is this? He was reading, and it's his, it's his book, and it, the title of the book was, You're Knowing This Business to Someone Wants You Dead. And I'm like, I don't want to read your fucking book. And I threw it back at him. He's like, no, read the first paragraph. And in the first paragraph, it said, I, I first realized I was a success in this business when, um, when my enemies outweighed my friends. And I looked at him, and I literally threw it back. I said, well, if that's what it takes to be you, I don't want to be you. And I said, go fuck yourself, Bernie, and I walked out. 
then he started like taunting me. He was calling me, you know, back then we really didn't do that much email. And he was like taunting me, like, you know, you just signed the new deal, give him the extra hundred thousand. And uh, I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to let you extort me. You know, what are you going to do now? I said, you know what, Bernie? I have all the master tapes. I paid for this show. I'm going to burn the master tapes unless you give the – you can't do that. So watch me. So back then we had these big HD5 masters, these huge HD masters. And we had an ISO, one for every camera, and then we had a line cut and a backup to the line cut. So I went, I took one, and I think we shot it with like 16 cameras. I took one of the cameras I didn't care about. And I burned, I went out in the parking lot of my studio and I, and I, I took lighter fluid and I burned, I burned the tape and I, I took the ashes and I had my assistant say, go, go bring this to Bernie Brillstein's office. Tell him I'm going to burn a tape a day until he caves in. He looks at me like, are you fucking kidding me? And so he calls me like, you better not do that. We'll see. And I'm like, and next day I burned two tapes and I send them the, the, the ashes. Well, sure enough, within a week I burned all the masters. Uh, I actually burned them all. Uh, and the, the, the ironic thing about this is that years later, um, I got like in this crazy fight. I was working with Melby from the Spice Girls and we get like in this big public fight, all settled now, all good. But like I had paparazzi follow me and I remember going to this place called Pitfire in North Hollywood. And, um, my wife and I were there eating with my daughter and like, I see these, these people looking at me. I'm like, shit, I go, I think that's like. Perez Hilton or paparazzi, they stop being so hard. I'm like, I'm telling you, they're looking at us. And all of a sudden, guy comes over. I'm like, shit. Yeah, are you Dan Couture? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, I knew it. Man, you're a legend. I'm like, who are you? He's like, I forget the guy's name at the time, but it was Steven Spielberg's assistant or old assistant. And he's like, and he's looking at his girlfriend. He's like, this guy's a legend. Steven still jokes about it to this day, man. You shoved it up Bernie Brillstein's ass. You burned the master tapes on that guy. And I'm like, but you know the funny thing was? That one deal ended up saving, probably protecting my company and us for millions of dollars and people trying to fuck with us over the next decade. Because I can't tell you how many times, because William Morris Agency packaged that deal, and I can't tell you how many times over the next 10 years when we would go and try to do deals with people and they would think I'm trying to bluff or whatever, and I would say, you think I'm bluffing? Call John Ferreter, who's no longer, he passed away two years ago. Call John Ferreter at William Morris and you ask him if I bluff. You ask him if I bluff, and like this, the, that story's become so legendary. But unfortunately, with the entertainment industry, you have to do things so freaking drastic for people to. No one in the entertainment industry is really honorable. Everybody jacks off, and like, if you want to, like, if you like, if I'm gonna do a deal with someone, I'm like, I'm one of the rare guys. Like, we analyze what someone's worth, we offer an advance, we offer a deal, and that's it. Like, if I want to pay, if we're all willing to pay someone a million dollars, we don't start at a hundred thousand and they start at 10 million and we go back and forth for two months till we end up at a million. We just say a million dollars, go shop it around, talk to other people, come back to us if you want to do it. End of story. I hate when lawyers go back and forth. You're paying them a thousand an hour and they're playing games, right? Yeah. I've always been like that. But unfortunately the business doesn't work like that. The business is extremely cutthroat. Everybody's litigious. Everybody sues each other and people aren't that honorable. And so, even despite being in this business for almost 30 years and being screwed over a lot of times, I still, weirdly enough, end up trusting people. And so whenever someone says, trust me, never take that advice. Like, always do things to protect yourself. And even now, we I go out of my way to protect ourselves. And I still, we, you still could get screwed. Think crazy shit happens all the time. We just had a problem with the festival we, we invested in. We went and did this festival and like... Two days later, they end up with liquidate and sell the assets, and we lost like eight hundred thousand dollars. We got screwed totally. totally. We, like they just pulled the rug out from underneath us. They didn't tell us they were liquidated. And they shut the whole thing down. They sold the assets to someone else. 
And we're left holding the bag with this huge payroll and everything. I mean, we did everything by the book on that one. We had signed contracts. We went out of our way to like do due diligence and we still got screwed. So, you know, the only best, like the, the best advice I give comes out of the worst advice. Like if anybody ever says, trust you, trust me, just, you know, nothing personal. I have to get a lawyer. I, I, you know, because there's this countless things. I mean, I bet you there's more litigation and entertainment, especially on the music side, than any other business. Um, it's just a, it's a weird world, and uh, unfortunately, uh, you have to, uh, you have to protect yourself, and, uh, and you just can't take someone's word. And that's the other thing. If you take, there's a a fifty percent chance, a minimum, maybe even as high as a ninety percent chance that if you're dealing with someone at a record label, especially if it's somewhere you own intellectual property rights. That person probably won't be there in a year. Those guys, it's a revolving door. So, like, I, whenever I do things with like labels or bigger companies, these people move around. Like, they, they tend to change jobs every year or every two years. And if I have a deal that's either a 10 year deal or even something greater, like in perpetuity, where we're owning a copyright, we really go out of our way to, to, to do all the legal work properly because the people you're dealing with won't be there. <laughs> I mean, that goes for presidents too. These guys are, these guys change every two years. That's crazy. So if there's anything, anything we can end this on, what's the, what's your final note you would like to leave people? Um, I mean, you know, I, I, God, you know, it's like the one thing I've always pride myself, I, you know, take risks in your life. Um, you know, you, you'll feel good about it. Like, you know, I, I, you know, I go back, I look at my whole career and everything. And like some of the coolest moments and some of the things that, I have the best memories from or things I, 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 you know, I took a risk on. And, uh, you know, if, you know, my dad worked for AT&T, my mom was a school teacher. They, uh, you know, my, I grew up in middle class family. My dad was a company guy and, you know, I was kind of raised to, you go get a job with one company, you stay with that company for 40 years and you get your pension and you, that's it. Right. Um, I, uh, I, I, I built a career following like my heart and I always wanted to do something, you know, that I was passionate about. And, you know, I kind of fell into the live concert thing. Like I, I was never trained as a director. I became a director because I started as I was producing and I would sit in TV trucks behind other directors. I was backseat driving. I was driving them crazy. I would see cameras. Be, I would see things in cameras before they saw it. And I'd be yelling over the shoulder, look at camera 12, look at 16. And I would drive them crazy to the point where, Directors are like, I can't direct for him. He's crazy. And I started just doing it myself. Um, and, and, you know, I was scared to do it. And, uh, you know, and I, and I took the chance and I taught myself how to direct. And that was like the most fulfilling thing ever. And so, you know, I took these huge risks. I, I changed career. And now look, now I have like this really cool body of work. I, I have a, when we can do it, we have a fun job. Like when I can go somewhere with a band and we do something, it's, it's a blast. Um, you know, but, you know, I think like I look back in time, like I don't really have any regrets and like taking these risks, like you learn a lot from them, but you end up like really, um, you really like, it, you get this sense of fulfillment. And, you know, the cool thing is like, you know, I look back, if it all ended today, um, I have this amazing body of work that's going to live far beyond my years, you know, 30 years from now, I'm pretty sure my shows are always going to still be seen and there'll always be a body of work with my name on it. And that's all there because I wasn't afraid to take a risk and follow my heart. Like I have a friend from college that reached out to me recently and he lived in Ohio and 
you know, he had a blue collar job all his years. He's like, God, I should have followed my heart and became a guitar player. And he wanted to now go into the arts. And he, he kind of dropped everything right now when he started acting midlife. And, but, you know, and it's not like he's making tons of money or even enough money to live off of, but he's more fulfilled now than he ever was. And so I never understood people why they go into dead end jobs. If you're not happy with your life, like, I think you'll be twice as happy doing what you really want to do, even if you're not really making it financially. Then, Because I know a lot of people that make a lot of money that are, are god-awful uh, miserable. I mean, I've been miserable too, where I've had ups and downs. And I think some of the times when I was the most miserable was when we were doing the best financially. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm the happiest when I'm sitting, sitting in a TV truck actually directing. And, and nothing, I don't worry about anything else. It, it just takes me to another place. And... Um, I fight, you know, now I'm really fighting to just do that restaurant. Like, I don't even want to run the company anymore. I just want to direct. And, and, and you know what? I, I don't take no for an answer. I just do it. You know, and like kids that want to go into filmmaking, I know you, we want to ask me this. Like, I get asked by a lot of friends. My kids graduate in high school. And, well, A, now is not the best time but to go into entertainment because our, our industry is a little upside down right now because they're still trying to figure out ways to shoot safely. I mean, even look what happened the other day, Jurassic Park, they suspended film and they started filming like what, and they were, they had every kind of safety measure known to man and they still had an outbreak of COVID one day in the filming. But, you know, I think the biggest thing I ever did, the biggest mistake I made is I never learned how to edit. Um, everybody should learn how to edit, whether you want to be a producer, a director, a cinematographer, because when you learn how to edit, you see things from a different perspective you start to understand the, the importance of other angles and the way different angles and different shots can tie stories together. So everybody that comes to work for us, their first step, we put them through the post department. So every intern that comes in or any new employee, we always make work with our post team and they have to learn at least the basics of editing because I think it makes them a, a, in general, a more rounded filmmaker and they see things differently. And uh, me, I'm just too old now. Like I'm one foot out the door. Um, I kind of know how to edit. I'm just scared to touch anything because I don't want to erase anything. So, um, and I have my editors I work with all the time, so I really need to. But like, and I, I kind of understand the basics. But um, I think everybody should learn how to edit if they want to go in because you'll really start to understand like filmmaking in general just from doing something like that. And and unless you want to be like a DP or you know a cinematographer, there's no need for film school. I mean, just start working. I mean, kids today have iPhones and laptops and you know, uh, uh, premiere, like there are some amazing filmmakers. Some of the most talented people I work with never went to film school. And believe it or not, some of the most talented people I'm working with right now are under 25. There are these kids out there that, that you're just like, Jesus. I mean, and they're all self-taught because, you know, when I grew up, you couldn't really go into filmmaking unless your parents are rich. I mean, there was, you had, you had like an eight millimeter camera or 16 millimeter. I mean, VH, even like video cameras really didn't come into play till like I was, you know, almost graduating high school. So now everybody could be a filmmaker. My daughter, even watching her do her TikTok videos, it's fascinating to me. They're so imaginative. Like these kids could, I think we're in, I think in 10 or 20 years, there's going to be a hundred Steven Spielbergs out there. There's going to be all these kids that are way more imaginative and, you know, way more talented than we've ever seen. You know, and I like that. I mean, I'm, I love watching these young kids come up to the ranks right now. We have a bunch that work for us and, I mean, it fascinates me that they're able to do this stuff. They're completely self-taught, even without any real experience. So I'm interested to see what some of these kids will do. Like in my world, like in the multi-camera world, 
I always try to recreate. I always try to one up each show. Like, what can I do this show? Like, what's another way I can capture the concert? Where can I put a camera I've never done before? And like, the one guy that fascinates me in this business is a guy named Paul Dugdale. And I think he's like the best director in the world right now. He did everything from a Taylor Swift Netflix film to One Direction. And he's just, the guy is just unbelievable. And like, he puts cameras in places I never would think of. I bet you there's going to be a rash of kids like that coming up that, you know, look what they're doing with drones now. Jesus. I mean, it's unbelievable. And so, it's going to be interesting to see how that translates into the business and how we start seeing because that could disrupt also the studio system because right now the studio system is political. Everything goes through a long and drawn out development process with like 100 people touching a project. Sure. I think with these kids now, these things might get streamlined and go right to like, a, you know, right to production. And I, I think with smaller crews and much simpler, but the end result will be actually twice as spectacular. It's going to be interesting. Yeah, definitely. So um, on that note, people say trust you, do your due diligence, take risks, do something you're passionate about. That's kind of the advice we'll take away from. Uh, and yeah, and, and always like, you know, there's there's advice. I tell you, like Steven Spielberg sort of told it to me, but my dad told me, you know, and the best advice I give people is you're only as good as the people around you. So, you know, on one hand, you know, don't trust people, you know, always make sure that you you protect yourself, but put good people around you, you know, and like, you know, if you have good people around you, you know, that I think that's the thing that that's the key to success. I mean, I'm, I'm finally starting to really learn the importance of having a, a good team around you. Uh, I'm fortunate. I have a bunch of people around me that I've worked with for years. Um, and the more we work together, we become like a family, but I think everybody needs to find like their team and like their little click. Um, and, you know, but, you know, unfortunately, this isn't the 50s and we're not like, you know, selling used cars. Unfortunately, in the entertainment industry, don't do anything on a handshake. Big no, no. I, and I've done it and I, I'm, and I say that and I even recently have done things like that. So I sometimes don't follow my own advice and I, the, the, I always get stung by the bee. So, uh, you know, that's the, the worst advice anybody ever gave me is to trust them. I would just, you know, always dot your I's and cross your T's with anything you do anything you know because you just never know what's going to happen and people do crazy shit when there's money involved oh yeah definitely um but listen i've had a blast <laughs> storytelling has been great well i didn't do storytelling i just listened intently um i want to thank you for joining me uh giving us all that info giving you that giving us that advice and uh i don't know maybe we'll be able to do this again we'll keep an eye out on some projects yeah you know what Let's hopefully do something. We could do it on October 5th. Hopefully, I have, I'm holding an Emmy from Breathe, Build, and Breathe. I pray to God that we get that. Uh, that would just be spectacular. And by then, I can talk a little more about uh, when you hear about the new Hazen project we're doing, it's pretty jaw dropping. And uh, hopefully, by then, we'll, the cat will be out of the bag, what it's about, and we'll be in post production, it'll be announced. But, uh, you know, it's interesting. And hopefully, by October, we know what the hell is going on. I mean, this is insane. Like, you know, we sat back. You know, when I found out, I knew that everything was going to hell in a handbasket March 6th. I was with Kiss up in Oakland, and I was sitting with the band and their manager, Doc McGee, and that was the first serious conversation that I overheard and I was even a part of where they were talking about canceling their tour, and that was when everything started really crumbling down, and I was like, oh, my God, really? I mean, you know, that's like $100 million in revenue, but it's also like the economic impact of even Kiss canceling a tour of all those dates is like in the hundreds of millions. And I'm like, holy shit, this is getting serious. And um, 
you know, things felt like it was getting back to normal again, like end of May, June, and like we were going to start shooting again. And now it looks like, I, I mean, if I had to put money on it, I think everything's going to get shut down again. Um, so, you know, it's, it, it's, it's kind of a weird thing. I don't know about you. I don't know. I, you know, I don't, I, it's very hard to operate a business or wake up every morning when you have no idea which way your industry is going. It's pretty yeah. crazy. Uh, and, uh, you know, I feel bad, like I, entertainment people, most people don't realize, you know, even the biggest artists I work with, you know, these artists don't make the kind of money that people think. And um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. There's a lot of very big established artists I know that can't go a year without touring. If they go a year without touring, their, their livelihood is going to be at stake. I mean, they have major overheads, a lot of people that work for them. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens here because there's right now, I would say 90% of the people I know, most of the people I know in the music business are subcontractors. Uh, a lot of them aren't W-2 employees. So these stimulus checks that people have been getting, uh, unemployment, they don't, they don't pertain to the people, a lot of people I know. I know a lot of big tour managers, sound guys, lighting guys. I know people that were very comfortable and worked with the biggest artists in the world that are in trouble right now. And if this keeps going, this goes another six months, and uh, we're gonna have major problems. Uh, and our entire industry is just being disrupted. So, you know, I hope to God something changes or something comes into play where people wake up and help people. But the, you know, the music part of the industry, like live events, is in, in trouble um, yeah. because I, you know, it all comes down to insurance. And you, you see me on Facebook. Um, I've been calling it since March. Every shutdown. I honestly don't think there's going to be sports this summer. I've been saying it for months now. School won't be back to normal. Concerts aren't going to come back until promoters can get insurance that even covers for COVID. And that's that's not going to happen until there's a vaccine out there for a minimum of six months. So yeah. we could see the shortage that we see right now, like the shutdown for the concert part could even last a, a year past when everything goes back to normal in other sectors. So we could be looking at a solid two years before festivals are back, before arena concerts are back. And uh, it's going to be tough on people. Uh, you know, I think even emotionally, a lot of people rely on going to concerts to get over tough times and can feel that connection with their favorite artists. That's not going to happen for a while. Uh, and so I think, so it's funny as I think in a weird way, like what we do is more important than ever. Um, I, I can try to bridge that gap and, and, and give that connection to fans for a little while. We just have to find cool ways to do it because I don't know about you, if I see one more freaking living room concert. I love him to death, nice guy. I don't want to see John Legend on his couch, I mean, behind his piano in his living room with the couch in the background. I'm done with that. I've, I mean, these living room concerts on Zoom have been driving me crazy. That has to stop. We have to do cooler things. We have to find a way to do something cool that people will want to watch. It's yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> well, but anytime, man, you know, you, you know where I am. I'm not going anywhere. I'll probably be in this room still. <laughs> I feel like I'm a caged animal. So anytime. The only reason I even do the podcast is have my own alone time when i can yeah, i'm gonna be honest <laughs> but, but no yeah, definitely I thank you for that yeah and, uh, i look forward to doing it again yeah I mean, projects yeah hopefully you can come out to a show and do it from there you know hopefully we uh you know hopefully we're not wearing hazmat suits right yeah well back to home, you're always welcome to come hang at a show uh, that's uh that's really where it's fun i will take you up on that 
but I will not cross my fingers on the non-hazmat suit thing at the rate we're going. So, well, if it's in the next year, that that's where it'll probably be. But you know, think you know, twenty twenty two, we can uh, have a, a show where we don't have to worry about catching a virus. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank we, you so much, Jeremy. And uh, I really appreciate it. Yeah, you too. And uh, have a stay safe. Don't get COVID. Yes, you too. Thank you. Right on. That's it for this week's episode of That's the Worst Advice Ever podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and were able to pull some valuable information. As always, I want to thank my guest, Daniel Cotullo, for joining me. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please feel free to like, subscribe, and share on your platform of choice. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.